God, we come before you, Father, because we need you. We're going to be talking about James, Father, there's so much that you have to teach us, Lord, but Father, we really want more of you. If we have knowledge but don't have you, we have nothing. And Father, you are doing something, and we will have trial. We will have tribulation, Lord. But you're teaching us to rely upon you, to depend upon you, Father. May we do so, Father, not on self-reliance, not on our own understanding, but to trust you in all things, Lord. And so, Father, I'm coming before you because I need you in this, to trust that you will speak what needs to be spoken, that which we need to hear, that we may love you more, glorify you more, love others, pouring out your love to them, Lord. Change us and mold us that we may become more like you, Jesus. You are sovereign. You are in control. And you have only good things planned. We pray of your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're starting now in a new study on the book of James. So you can... Hello there. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> Not sure why that's up there, but we'll figure it out. Um, first, let's go to James chapter 1.1. 1, 1. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. So I want to give a little bit of background about James. And, you know, there's been a little bit of discussion about who actually this author is. There are different James lists in the Bible. Probably initially in the Gospels, the most famous is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. He is the first apostle who was martyred. Okay. Um, so in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, there he is, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, here's another James, Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite. But then in the next part, you get to realize what happens with James. I mentioned he's the first apostle martyred in Acts 12.2. He, it refers to Herod, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is Herod Antipas. Okay? Killed James, the brother of John. So he gets killed early. And then there, this is written. We know this is written after that time. Okay? So we know that this cannot be James, the brother of John. Okay? There's another James I just mentioned, the son of Alphaeus, right? It's also mentioned also in Mark chapter, uh, sorry, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. And it says later that Jesus appeared to James and to the apostles. Um, we don't really hear very much about James, the son of Alphaeus, and most authorities do not believe that he is that because they wouldn't, that would be a very awkward phrase. He was just, he appeared to all the apostles, James and all the apostles, why would you isolate him separate? And um, that's why he's not. There's another James, the father of the other apostle. So it says in Luke chapter 16, 6, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So um, all of those, that's, that's the third James. But most authorities believe that the James that we're speaking of is called James the Just. And this James... Is the half-brother of Jesus. And here's what we'll tell you why. So James, son of Mary and Joseph, half-brother Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 to 56, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, or Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude? And his sisters, are they not all with us? And in Jude chapter 1, Jude says, Jude, 
a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So we see the connection there. Okay? So, James is mentioned indirectly there a little bit in the grouping with his brothers and his sisters, plural, so a minimum of two sisters. Okay? But he didn't really understand Jesus' ministry at the time. Look at John 7, 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And in Mark 6, 3 and 4, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and sisters, are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So this James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, was not even there at the crucifixion. And Jesus recognized that. That's why he addressed John, the beloved, and he said at the crucifixion, Here is your mother. Here is your son. And basically, Jesus emphasized the spiritual relationship was superior to biology. We have to remember that. God always emphasizes the spiritual, the eternal, over the temporal. So the good thing is, Jesus had a plan with us. It was not a surprise to him. And in 1 Corinthians 15:7, after that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. So Jesus dies at the resurrection. He comes back. And he intentionally reveals himself to his half-brother, James. And James then stays in Jerusalem and forms part of the group of believers who pray in the upper room. Look at Acts, verses, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That means his brothers were there too. Okay, at least James and likely Jude and maybe also Simon and Joseph. We also know so that this half-brother James stays within the Jerusalem church and grows along with it. Such that Paul, when he's recently converted, says in Galatians 1.19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And also later, you get to see, so after John's brother James, the son of Zebedee, dies, Herodotus thinks, oh, this is good. The Jews like me. Oh, let's go get Peter. Throws him in jail, puts Peter in jail, and plan is to execute him. And so all the apostles get together, and they're praying fervently. An angel comes sees uh, Peter in jail and releases the chains, and he walks out of the jail. Okay? He goes all the way to the door. He knocks on the gate. One of the maidservants, Rhoda, goes and um, sees him. And is surprised that he's there. So surprised and excited that she forgets to let him in and rushes to tell everybody else, Hey, Peter's alive and he's here. And Peter keeps talking. Hey, I'm here. Okay? And they let him in. But it says there, okay, when Peter entered in, in Acts 12, 17, but motioning them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. So at this time, Jesus loved his brother to encourage him. He wanted to let him know that even though you didn't see the miraculous or you didn't perceive it when I was living, I'm a God of miracles and I'm a God who changes people. So later, as James matures in his faith, in Acts chapter 15, and we're going to go through a long one here, verses 5 to 22. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. 
Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter, and that when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Simon, and, and with this word, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I, that's James, judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations that those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. This tells us that James had grown at that stage to authority within the Jerusalem church. And most custom and tradition believe that he led that church. Okay? That he was the pastor. So he became, and I want to show you a little bit of an evolution, a little bit of a change. I have more to talk about that. So in Galatians 2.9, and when James, Cephas, referring to Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And then also, lastly, in Acts 21.18, when Paul Agabus tells Paul that he's going to be bound and taken to Rome, his last trip to Jerusalem, Paul went with it says, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. So, this guy who's a half-brother of Jesus gets special revelation, gets to see Jesus, and is continually encouraged and becomes this leader within the Jerusalem church. And I want to give a little bit of a background how he was a guy who was opposed, basically dismissive, becomes completely devoted. So, what was it like for this James growing up in the household with Jesus? Right? On one hand, you know, we, we believe, and there are others who believe that Joseph had um, been previously married, was older. This is commonly the belief within the Eastern Orthodox and many of the Roman Catholics. Um, it doesn't seem to jive with what's going on, and it comes out of the um, Gnostic Gospels and um, the Gospel of James that came out in the 2nd century, and I can go into detail about that. Suffice to say, it doesn't really have good foundation. It's really an attempt to perpetuate what they want to believe. This is what people tend to do. Instead of taking the Bible from what it says, they use it to manipulate it to serve what they want, what their agenda is, and they contort it taking scriptures out of context. The plain reading that we see here and here, and that's why I wanted you to see it, shows again and again that this is the brother and the half-brother. So, 
after Mary had Jesus, it says at the very beginning in Luke that Joseph did not lay with Mary until Jesus was born. But that doesn't mean he didn't afterwards. And we believe he did. And then because Joseph is, sorry, because James is identified first when they named the brothers, that he was probably the firstborn actual biological son of both Joseph and Mary. Okay? Probably pretty soon thereafter, within a couple of years. So he might have been one or two years younger than Jesus. Okay? So he grows up. Kind of a mixed blessing. One hand, you have an older brother who's without sin. Right? He's nice. He's good. He has love. He has joy. He has peace. He has patience. He has kindness. He has gentleness. He has faithfulness. He has self-control. He has all the good traits in every way. On the other hand, you don't. And it's pretty obvious when you compare it to them that you don't. Right? And so... We don't know if his parents actually said, why can't you be more like Jesus? But you certainly would grow up with that idea going, yeah, I'm not at that standard that he is. He's better than I am. Right? And so there's a tension there. You may kind of have a love-hate relationship. Wouldn't surprise me, but I don't know. Nothing is really said in scriptures, so there's a lot of conjecture on that. The other thing to be aware of is you do have a little bit of a, a disconnect within society. You know, you hear from your mom and dad, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit came and seminated your mom. Jesus was born that way. Mom and I didn't have relations until after that, really. Everybody in society outside probably is not thinking that. They don't see that. They don't see Jesus being special. That's why he makes no, has no miracles in Nazareth, because they don't see him anything special, right? And they're wondering, hmm, what did... Mary do beforehand, and why did Joseph do that? He must be a nice guy. I don't know if I would be that nice. So, but if that works for you, you know, that's fine. The tension. There's tension. There's unbelief. There's doubt. Okay? He's, Jesus is perfect, and then at age 12, you go to on this, or you're 10, and he's 12, you go on this temple visit, and your brother is lost. And you're coming back, and you know, your parents probably have never had to worry about Jesus because he always did what he was told. He always did the right thing. He never made mistakes, so you don't really have to supervise him. Okay? And then you're walking away, and then you realize, hey, where's Jesus? And you go back, and he gives this explanation, I'm in my father's house. And you're 10 years old, your 12-year-old brother tells you that, and you're a little bit like, what? I don't understand. But you then realize that he goes back home, and he does everything his parents tell him. For 18 more years. Okay? At age 18, most Jewish boys would get married. Jesus does not. Okay? If you look at the rabbinic understanding, by the age of 18 to 20, you're supposed to be married. And most of the scholars think that if you don't, it's a major sin against the church. You're supposed to get married and start a family. That's what you're supposed to do. Your older brother doesn't do that. He does go on the father's train, but doesn't do that. You, on the other hand, probably do. You're a good Jewish boy. You're going to follow what they tell you to do. You're going to the temple. You're going to the synagogue. And you're following God. So at the age 18, you probably get married. Okay? And within the next 10 years or so, you probably have children. Okay? Sometime in that time, your father dies. When exactly? We don't know. Okay? So you presume your older brother is going to be the one heading the family. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to lead and head, head the family. And when you're 28, your brother 30, he decides to go and become an itinerant preacher, like this rabbi. Not really fully formally trained, not gone to rabbinic schools. And he goes off on his own, leaves the family business, leaves the, essentially the family home, and goes walking and then recruits all these people. And you're like, what's going on here? You're baffled. The rest of your brothers and your sisters are like, they're probably, the sister's probably married. Your brother's probably married to having families. And Jesus is kind of doing his own thing. He's kind of always done his own thing. And you're trying to understand. So I'm trying to paint this picture of this is what it's like beforehand. Because you're seeing things in the temporal. You're not seeing things in the spiritual perspective. And the reason I'm going to tell you that is that's our challenge. We can see things in the temporal and not the spiritual. 
As Pastor shared, what happened Sunday was amazing. I was weeping. I, I don't understand what's going on inside of me. I still don't fully grasp what's going on inside of me. But something happened. Something on a spiritual level. And we saw that. The kids were sent for that. That's why they came forward. Something happened. God is trying to do something on a deeper level within us. To shake us from our attachments to the temple. That's what Jesus did with James. Turned his whole world upside down after the resurrection that he fully devotes his life. He fully devotes his life that such that he was called camel knees. That's the reputation because he prayed so much on his knees, his knees became so calloused. His knees became so calloused. Okay? Continually praying. Okay? Probably out prayed, praying hide. Okay? That's the depth of his prayer. So passionate for the gospel, for his, for the risen Jesus, that he doesn't care about his, he doesn't, about his status. He doesn't tell people or purport to say, hey, I'm Jesus' brother. Look at me. Okay? I got this pedigree. He doesn't toot that horn. We share the same mother. And now, after I'm being reborn in Christ, we actually have the same father in that sense. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm a bondservant, a doulos, a slave of Christ. His focus is on the eternal. Because he realizes who he is, a bondservant of God. It's reported that around 62 A.D., it's not listed in the Gospels, but this is through church history, that when there's a change in Rome at the um, at time in the oversight, that the um, Jewish leaders took him to the top of the temple and threw him off the temple to kill him. He did not initially die, and they had to kick and beat him to death. He was a martyr. They considered a martyr as well. James the Just. And he's called Just because you get to see that in the book of James what he was focused on, which is righteous behavior. Now, I mentioned one thing more. Um, I mentioned about him being married. And the other reason why we think he probably was married is when Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 9.5, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. And this brothers, while some say it means spiritual brothers, really, if you look at the context, um, it's really talking about likely as biological brothers. So, um, so I mentioned earlier about von Servant being doulos. So a doulos is a slave to a lord. And the Greek word for Lord here is kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. And it means essentially the master of a doulos. And at that time, in Greek culture, because it was written in Greek, being a doulos was the worst position to be in. Nobody wanted to be a slave. Supposed to be independent. It's not much different than our culture. I'm free. Nobody's a boss to me. I get to do my own thing. I have my rights. I'm no slave to anybody. Nobody has authority over me. That's not what James said. James said, I am a slave. Jesus Christ has authority over my life. Jesus Christ gets to determine what happens to me. He gets to guide my path. He gets to tell me what to do. That's what a slave does. It's interesting how in our culture, and I've seen that more and more, how much more rebellion there is. Much more. Um, there isn't any sense of that same sense of respect. It was encouraging to go to India because I got to see how the people there still adhere to the idea of respect, consideration. Our society, particularly when the young, which challenges, question authority, 
has lost all that. Everybody thinks because they have access to this phone, this computer, they have all the knowledge that we have. And he's going to talk more, James will, about the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. So the next part, let's go back to that verse. He says, James is talking to the twelve tribes. The twelve tribes in First James 1.1 1, 1, refers to, obviously, the twelve tribes of Israel. We mentioned earlier, Paul and Barnabas are going to be sharing the gospel to the Gentiles, Peter and James to the Jews. So that was his mission field. Spain, Jerusalem, primarily ministered to the Jews. What we do know about the book of James, it was probably written somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D., and we think probably around 50. Some, or at least most authorities believe, it's probably the first of the letters of the New Testament written, that it predates Galatians written by Paul, okay? Which is written probably around 52. How we know that a little bit is because certain things that James did not communicate or write down in the book of Acts that you would think he would allude to. But I'm not going to elaborate on that. It doesn't really matter. They're secondary things. Okay? Um, what we do know, it says here, he also says, to the twelve tribes which were scattered abroad. So at the time, because of what happened when the Romans took over, many Jews left, and they went to all the different um, provinces within Rome. So they were in North Africa, they were in Rome and all through Asia, and often where they went, there were synagogues, and often that's where Paul went to preach the message, and we get to hear about that. And he's preaching to many of the Jews, his first mission, and to the Gentiles, to really bring them to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So James' initial intent is to speak to these Jewish believers. Okay. One of the things to look about the book of James is it's, it's different than how Paul writes. And we're going to talk about it because when you look at it, most people compare James to the book of Proverbs. He has a lots of different statements to indicate about what we should do. It's a practical message. Okay? It's not about theory. Okay? He's not a lot of theology. It's basically rubber meets the road, what we're called to do. If you look through the book of Proverbs, it tells you again, what's our conduct? What should we do? What should we do? Martin Luther had took issue with that because he called it initially epistle of a straw. People have heard about, and the reason he did that is because many of the Roman Catholics of the day were um, touting James as, oh, save salvation by works as well as faith. And that's not what Luther believed. That's not what we believe. But he had a great esteem and value for the book of James because he says even at the beginning that I think highly of the epistle of James and regard it as valuable. It does not expound human doctrines but lays much emphasis on God's law. Okay, so the point being is there's no question James is appropriately placed within the, the New Testament and there's no question that God wanted us to heed what James had to share. Okay, let's look at the next verse. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, i.e. mature, and complete, lacking nothing. So what's he saying? He said, look, trials are going to happen. It's not a question of if, but when. There are going to be different challenges, and they often will catch us unaware, and there's going to be lots of them, various, many, some of the translations use. Where are we going to get trials from? We're going to get trials from the world. We're going to get trials in our work, in our relationships, and from Satan. One important point. Trials 
are not due to a bad or mean God, but to a fallen world. But God uses trials, just as He did with Job. One big difference: you don't face the trials alone. We don't face the trials alone. God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He is trying to take take us away from self-reliance to God-reliance. He uses the trials. How does He use the trials? We'll talk about that. So. It says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James said, it's inevitable. Um, Moffat, one of the... Um, um, I'm going blank. He's an expositor. He, um, commentator, says, James wants to greet it as pure joy. Okay? He says, he says count it, consider it. Um, the Greek word, greet it, is actually a little bit more appropriate, and that juxtaposes with his salutation in the first verse where he says, Greetings! Greetings to y'all! And, by the way, I want you to greet it as pure joy. Okay? So he's talking about our attitude and how we should do it. The King James uses the word temptations. Most modern translations use the word trials. Trials is a better word than temptations. Temptations are used by the enemy to have us stumble. Trials are used by God to grow us more into Him. So it says here, testing of your faith produces patience. The Greek word for patience is hyponomy. So it's spelled H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E. It's not the kind of patience where you just kind of sit around. Okay, when is this going to happen? That's not the patience we're talking about. It talks about active patience, endurance. It's the patience of somebody who's running a marathon. Okay. Plot away. Okay. It's, it's somebody who, who, who just, I'm going to persevere. That's whether you sometimes persevere is used instead. It is intentional. It is active, not passive. So, it says there, getting back, the testing of your faith produces patience. Faith is tested during trials. Faith is not produced. It doesn't say it's produced. It doesn't say it's produced by trials. What do the trials do? They reveal the faith that we have. We have a trial, then we are looked with do I really believe or don't believe? So God uses that because God wants us to reveal our own hearts. How do we get faith? Romans 10, 17 answers that. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. As we have the Word of God, as we meditate, as we listen, as we press in, as we pray over, that's how our faith increases. I really believe that. That's why you'll see me have scripture up here all the time. Because the Lord of God is better than anything that I can say. Supernaturally, when we hear the word, every time it's said, every time we read it, every time we speak it, something changes within us. The more we immerse ourselves with it actively, with the right attitude, the more we're changed the more we're changed. If we can take a hold of that, listening to the Word, reading the Word out loud to yourselves, reading the Word, spending time with the Word, talking to God about the Word, asking Him, inviting Him, actively engaging with God about the Word, it will change us. So, we said that trial doesn't produce faith, but it does produce patience or forbearance. So it says, I mentioned, consider or count it all joy. It doesn't mean the trial is joyful. It doesn't mean it's fun. Oh, it's a lot of fun. No, it's not fun. It wasn't fun. I had to deal with the trial of what was going on with my son. When I had to deal with the death of my wife, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun when I broke my wrist. It wasn't fun. 
It's not, the occasion is not joyous. What God was asking of me and is asking of us is our attitude to be one of joy, to know that He is faithful to complete the good work that He began, that He's going to use it for His glory and for His will. And that's what we need to take hold of. How do we trust Him in the midst of trial and believe it in joy, knowing the reason we have the trial is God is not letting us go. He says, He chastises every son He receives. He is molding us. He's using it. So why does God permit trials? He does it for three main reasons. One, for our maturation. Two, for correction. And three, for direction. Okay? So, Romans 5, 3 to 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, also patience and perseverance, character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know and I do that we grow a lot more in bad times than good. It's in the trial, in the midst of the challenges that I don't like what's happening, that I have a choice. I can become discouraged or disappointed, or I could count it all joy and know that God's going to work this to good. He's going to take away the dross, take away those parts that are not like Jesus, and make me more like Jesus. Because I've got a long way to go, and there's a lot of work ahead of me. Okay? Because we do. We all do. Okay? Paul says, he declares the trials person of his self-reliance and made him more God-dependent. Every time of a trial, I have a choice to... And I, you know, in the past, I didn't do that. When my wife was sick, I didn't turn to God. I didn't trust in the goodness of God. So, to turn to God, we have to believe that God is good. We have to believe that He is faithful, that He will help us in the midst of trials, that He will walk us with us through the trials and to the end of the trials, and that the outcome at the end of the trial will be worth what we went through. When I went through Pure Life Ministry through the trial, it was a trial to save my marriage. If you told me at the beginning, and I've shared this with many of you, hey, you went in to save the marriage, but you're not going to save the marriage. You're not going to work for 10 months, and you'll have to work at a place that you'll make, you know, about one twentieth of what you normally make. And you're going to get have three attorneys. You're going to be sued for divorce, challenges with the licensure board, and sued for something you didn't do. But you'll have Jesus at the end. At the beginning, I would have said, there's got to be an easier way. But I didn't know. This was the best way. This was by far the best way. And that's what we know. That trial was used by the Lord. And we don't always understand at the beginning. Because I didn't have, I'd given up and forsaken. I didn't really believe or trust in Jesus. And it's still a challenge for all of us in our belief. God uses those trials to help that, to help us to examine our belief, to put me in a position to go, I need more of you, Jesus. Help my unbelief. Spend time in the Word, letting the Word wash over me to cultivate that. So, I mentioned, God will use trial to bring us correction. How do you do that with correction? He did it with Jonah, right? He told Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, yeah, no. I'm going to Tarshish. Okay, he goes on a boat. What happens? You all know about it. Big storm. He says, it's my fault. He tells the sailors. They throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a great fish. Big trial, right? So, there's correction. You know that about the prodigal son. What happened with the prodigal son? There's correction. God will use trial. And which one of us has not sinned that we need a correction by the Lord and God used a trial to correct us? Me. I did. We all did. What else does he use it? He uses it for direction. That means we didn't, weren't disobedient. Paul had a trial when his ship was shipwrecked in Malta. He was planning to go and wanted to share the gospel. He gets diverted and goes to Malta. 
He goes to Malta. What happens? Miracles happen. People come to the Lord. Salvation. Paul talks about how he wanted to go to Asia and he was directed somewhere else. God will use trials for direction. Not necessarily because of what something we do wrong. We may think, that's not fair. We're a doulos. We're a bondservant. We've said, your will, not my will be done. You know what's best. Am I here to serve my interest in my life? Or am I here to trust you, God, and what you have? And if you take me somewhere else that I don't think is the best way, you know what's best, and I know you're going to work it out to good. And in that trial, you're going to conform me to more like your son, Jesus. I want you to know that's the intention. Maturation, correction, direction. God uses the trials. They're not by accident. They're not by accident. We don't live in an accidental world. This universe didn't happen by accident. Our lives didn't happen by accident. We're not here by accident. This is the plan the Lord has. We can go along with it joyfully, rejoicing in Him, trusting Him that He's going to turn it to good, or we can buck and chafe. Beat against the goads, as it were. So, I am not going to go to the next part about wisdom. So I went to just the first part, but I will go more next time. And I'm going to open up to some questions that people have. Um, there are five chapters in James. We have eight sessions, so we have time. We have time. But do you all have any questions? Go ahead, Frank. And correction. Mm-hmm. In one trial. Mm-hmm. Excellent example. He had to do a correction. He was proud. He had to be humbled. He was humbled by the Lord. Okay. He became a servant on that. That happened pretty quickly, the correction part. And then he gave him direction and he matured him such that he was... The master of Potiphar's household then gave him another trial and threw him into jail. Not his fault. That was changed direction. Still blessing. Continue to grow him to become more godly in character. Perfect example, Frank. Thank you. Excellent. Anybody else? Yes. And, uh, and I like the fact that he called them fiery trials. He really emphasizes that we are in the fire. Um, and, and we're to count it all joy because it's, we're sharing in God's glory. Mm-hmm. Sharing the suffering with Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's why the, the enemy, and so Pastor shared earlier, and I think this is important to emphasize, every time there's a blessing, there's going to be a trial after that, and we're going to be attacked by the enemy. So Satan's going to throw spears. How do we deflect the spears? Shield of faith. Right? So we need to cultivate our faith. Am I forgetting something? Oh, he wants the microphone. Okay. Pastor has something to share. I was actually thinking about it earlier. Um, I don't want to go through trials. Mm-hmm. If I'm honest with myself, I want things to go smooth. I don't want any problems. That's what I want. But yet, God allows problems. He allows things. Um, It's good that it's hard sometimes. Even though I don't like it. it. It's not what I would choose at all. And when I understand he is wanting to do something through it, which really is counting it joy, then he's able to produce what he's wanting to produce in my heart. And, you know, it's okay to be honest with the Lord. I think he, he delights as his children when we were able to go to him and say, Lord, I don't like this. 
Lord, uh, this is hard, but God, thank you. I know you're, you're, you're really just answering my prayers to be more like you and to be used by you and um, to prepare this vessel for you because that's how he cleanses the stuff out because that's what the idols are. It's the things we want other than God. You know, so with that, what, what, I'll, what I'll say to you guys is beware of taking the easy way. There's always an easier way. We can always try to subvert hard things or get out of it or, you know, sometimes we can make things better mm-hmm. by the decisions we make. And so we just got to make sure that we're not thwarting what God, the very thing God wants to use in our lives um, to change us, to bring us where he's wanting us to be. And I've seen this so many times in guys' lives where you, you see God working, but they don't like where God has them. And so they're going to make it better. And it's like, ah, oh, no, just wait. You know, sometimes they're like right there, and uh, we can all do that. And so I just want to encourage you guys, don't look for the easy way out. Stay in the fire. Stay in the trial. God has you until He, until you know He is finished doing what He wants to do. I want to add something to what Pastor said. We, we are not alone. God's with us, but also the body. So, when you're in that, seek counsel. It says in Proverbs, the wisdom sees counsel. They'll give you counsel of what you should do or shouldn't do. Okay? Don't assume that the most expeditious route, the thinking of man, is sufficient. And the next part that we're going to talk about is what is the wisdom of God? And we're going to talk a little about seeking wisdom. And so, We'll talk about. We need to seek wisdom. So that's that'll be the part that we'll begin next week with. I invite you to look at Proverbs chapter four, verses five to thirteen. We'll read it next week, but look at that and chase after wisdom. We need more wisdom. We don't see things the way God does. God is, sees all of it, and so what Pastor said is accurate. God knows our heart. He's not surprised that we don't have the faith. Oh, I thought you were more faithful than that. Look what all I did for you. Yeah, he doesn't. He's not surprised. He knows exactly where we are. The sooner we confess it, all the trials is for our our purpose to see within ourselves what our hearts are like. Where are you at? And then being honest about it, being transparent. I am nowhere near as strong in my faith as I need to be. I need much more of you to be more faithful. And so. That's where wisdom will come in, and we'll talk a little bit about about, about wisdom next week. Any other questions? Go ahead, Patrick. Uh, not so much a question, kind of going along with what Pastor Jeff said. I don't know if any other parents have felt like the Lord's used your parenting to share something with you. But, um, uh, I think it was Olivia one time had just told her something or given her something allowed her to do something that she wanted, her response was, you're the best dad ever. And it just it was one of those things I said without even thinking, and then after you say it, it's, you can feel it's God speaking to you. At least it seemed like I said, no, you're saying that because I just gave you something you want. Tell that to me when I'm correcting you, when I'm punishing you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just that, that thing that clicked, and yeah, it's, it's easy and it's a natural, not necessarily meaningless response when you get something you want. When we feel we're in the fire and God's working with us, do we say He's the best God ever? Do we love Him and praise Him? Do we have that joy? And that's what it says. Count it all joy. Consider it joy. Our attitude we have during the midst of it 
is how we honor God. We show Him, I believe you. You're going to work it out. I believe you're a good daddy even though I don't like what you're doing. I believe you're a good daddy even though I don't like what's happening to me. Whatever joy is. Anything else? Yes, Troy. Kind of thought of two things is, and it may have already been mentioned. I think it it may have, but in my life, trials help me see how far I'm, or how much I'm not like Jesus, mm-hmm. how much, how self-centered I am. So mm-hmm. it, it actually has the opportunity to create dependency on God. And gratitude, but also like the verses you read from Romans five, where it says, "Suffer." We rejoice in our suffering mm-hmm. because suffering produces endurance and character and hope. And when we endure trials, God is forming something different in us. It's something not of us. It's Jesus, and there's a substance there. There's character and there's hope, but also. We have something then to share with others when we see others going through struggles, when we've been through it, and God has formed that character. There's something of substance, and it's Jesus, and uh, it's really part of a new life is choosing to see the goodness of God through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ to help sustain us in trials, and it gives us something to share to others that's not rooted in ourselves. And I just thank God for that, but it. Yeah, it's part of a new life. Thank you. I have a, one, one thing I'm just going to close out with, and it is, um, well, maybe I don't have it anymore. I thought I had it, but I've taken it out. Trying to delete. Just, um, oh, here. From Spurgeon, your trials can prove a wonderful work of Godness. I have looked back to times of trial with a kind of longing, not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I have felt it then, to feel the power of faith as I have felt it then, to hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then, and to see God at work as I saw Him then. That's what's available for us. Amen. God, Father, I just pray for us that we would uh, press in more to you, trust in you more, Father. We're going to have trials, Father. Help us to, to, to rely upon you, to be joyful, knowing that you're an amazingly good God. You don't give bad things. You don't give bad things to who you love. You are the perfect Father, always wanting us to become more like Jesus, knowing that that's the best for us. Help us to have an eternal perspective, your perspective. In Jesus' name.